Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Four Democratic presidential candidates were in Metro Atlanta's area yesterday to court voters. New Jersey Senator Cory Booker and Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg spoke at the African American Leadership Council Summit in the morning. Former Vice President Joe Biden and former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke delivered remarks at a Democratic Party fundraiser in the evening. With more than 500 days until the 2020 presidential elections and still no date for when Georgia will hold its primary, what makes Georgia a top campaign stop for White House hopefuls? Well, for more on that, we are joined by GPB's Political Rewind producer, Robert Jemison. Robert, good morning. Good morning, Virginia. Thanks for being here. So far, major candidates have already made more than a dozen trips to Georgia. Have we ever seen this much Democratic action this early? So this is a lot of action, and you're right. We have not seen this much action in the state for quite a long time. you got to remember, no Democrat has carried Georgia in the presidential election since 1996. Um, and so this is a clear sign that Georgia is a battleground state. This comes from, in part, the large showing in the 2018 elections where Stacey Abrams came within 50, vo- 55,000 votes of becoming governor, you know, Flip seats in strong-held Republican congressional districts such as Lucy McBath up in the 6th Congressional District um, and a lot of other signs that show this, you know, purpling, as we call it, um, of the state. Well, the evening was capped off with uh, this major Democratic Party fundraising event where Stacey Abrams, a former gubernatorial candidate, delivered the last speech of the evening. What did she have to say? Well, you would think that Stacey Abrams, as you know, one of the most high-profile Democrats from Georgia. A lot of these candidates were here to to court her vote her, and her support. You know, an endorsement from Stacey Abrams is almost like a gold star for any of these candidates. But, you know, when she took the stage to close the event last night, it was interesting. She sounded more like a candidate, even though she's not running. You know, she's been on this campaign for voter suppression and, you know, fixing the election system and getting more voters registered. And she really did sound like one of the other candidates up there on stage. Did any other candidates pick that up, the idea of voter suppression or election reform? Oh, absolutely. You know, Abrams has charged candidates since November 6th or, or since the elections in 2018. She's made it a focus to focus on voter suppression. And, you know, one in particular, Cory Booker, he started off the day's events. He was speaking at this summit in the morning and he really really hyped up on the the concept of voter suppression. He also picked up on another theme that was consistent throughout the day when he was speaking about women's reproductive rights and how they'll be important in this election. This has got to be a movement election because what I see, particularly for African-American communities, is unacceptable. This assault on women's reproductive rights is an assault on women, but it's a particularly assault on African-American women. A movement election, and he's got to get the ground game. Similar to Stacey Abrams, that was a true movement here in Georgia. But what did he have to say that was Georgia-specific? Well, speaking to Georgia specifically, after his remarks at the event in the morning, he was speaking to a group of support uh, reporters, rather, and he made a pretty bold statement by calling Georgia definitively a, quote, blue state. Now, he based that claim on the idea that there are more Democrats here than we think. And he said that his strategy is going to be for voter turnout. Um, you know, if he believes that there are those Democratic voters out there, one has to ask, 
how did Stacey Abrams not reach them when she had a really robust ground game? If so, if he hopes to get those voters that she didn't, he's going to have to invest a lot of time, energy and money to reach those voters. Georgia is a state where there are more Democrats living here, I imagine, than, than there are Republicans. Just looking at uh, the state numbers, what we need to do is to get people out to vote. This is a blue state. Now, the Georgia GOP quickly picked up on that when it got out. You know, it spread on Twitter and social media. And the Georgia GOP tweeted back at him a reminder that, you know, Georgia is not a blue state, that we do have a Republican governor, that statewide offices have been held by Republicans for years. And they tweeted the reminder that Stacey Abrams is not the governor. Well, bold statement on the part of Cory Booker there. How about Mayor Pete, Pete Buttigieg, uh, as that's how he's known. What did we hear from him? So this was his first trip down to Georgia for a campaign. He was here earlier for a visit with um, President Jimmy Carter, but he also picked up on the focus of voter suppression, and he went after the racially motivated voter suppression and the election issues. When racially motivated voter suppression is permitted, when districts are drawn so that politicians get to choose their vote, instead of the other, their voters instead of the other way around, when money is allowed to outvote people in this country, we cannot truly say that we live in a democracy. So that was, of course, to the African-American Leadership Summit. Uh, do you think he was, you know, is this consistent with what Pete, Mayor Pete has been talking about? This is pretty consistent. You know, he's focused his themes on democracy and, you know, re regaining trust in democracy. And so his solutions for what, what he identifies is the, you know, voter suppression issue is to expand automatic registration. This is something that a lot of candidates have talked about, is why aren't people automatically registered to vote when they turn 18? He also talked about um, getting people to register before they turn 18. A lot of people don't know this, and you can currently in the state of Georgia also, you can register to vote when you're 17 years old. You can't vote when you're 17, but you can go ahead and register so that everything is squared away. When you do turn 18, you're prepared to vote in the elections. And uh, Joe Biden and Beto O'Rourke also shared similar proposals. You did get a chance to speak with Mayor Pete. What did you ask him about? So I wanted to ask him more about, you know, specifically to Georgia, how does he think he's going to win the state? You know, this was his first trip down here. He's a mayor from Indiana. So how does he hope to connect with Georgia voters? He had a lot to say about, you know, connecting with Georgia voters and the similarities between where he serves as governor, South Bend, Indiana, and the rural parts and the you know programs he's been able to instill to, you know, help economic development here. Well, there rather. But he's also talked about, you know, how Obama turned Indiana blue in his election and how he hopes to do the same thing in Georgia. But look, I saw Indiana, my very conservative state, turn blue for Barack Obama in 2008. There's no reason to believe that uh, Georgia uh, would not be in play for Democrats in 2020. That is Mayor Pete Buttigieg speaking with Robert Jemison. He's producer for Political Rewind, but he was on the campaign trail yesterday looking at some of the candidates, four candidates from the Democratic field who were visiting Georgia and the metro area. So fair comparison, do you think, rural Georgia and Indiana as a state in terms of voters and the kind of things that they care about? Absolutely. You know, there's a lot of similarities between and they and they share a lot of the struggles, the economic development, you know, the leaving factories in Indiana and the struggling farmers in Georgia and the ways that he tried to pair those connections were really profound. You know, 
he hasn't just he hasn't had the chance to reach those voters, though. I don't know if the, the rural voters in Georgia are hearing his message in the way that, you know, they would be if he were, say, a senator. Right. So Mayor Beto O'Rourke, on the other hand, he has been, let's say, getting his message out via a robust presence on social media. I'm not sure how many rural Georgians are actually following that. But what did he have to say to Georgia voters? So he also talked about voter suppression and women's reproductive rights. Now, you'll remember he is in that trio of Democratic candidates including Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gillum, who, you know, were given a lot of money and they all did not win their elections. Um, So he's another, you know, failed candidate that we would say that is coming out to try to be the president. You know, he made he talked about the significant gains that Democrats made, even though he lost and how he says that's a signal for what will come in 2020. If we repair our democracy at this moment of maximum threat and peril for that very democracy and for this country, then we will fully honor the service and the sacrifice of those who preceded us. And I believe it is the only way to take on the historical challenges that we face. If we want to make so the ways that he wants to repair the democracy, you know, he talked about things like partisan gerrymandering. And of course, Democrats can charge Republicans with this, but this goes both ways. When when Democrats are in power, they also have been known to redraw districts that favor them. He also wants to regulate super PAC spending that heavily influences campaigns, a lot of big money going into campaigns. That's not necessarily the money from voters in, in the districts where people are being elected. Um, he also made a point that has been echoed by a number of candidates and that there's a lack of trust in the democracy and in the democratic system. And so a lot of these candidates talked about, you know, reaching these voters and telling them, hey, if you elect me, I will make this government work for you. So how about former president, former vice president, rather, Joe Biden, who is leading in the polls by a long shot, was also here. What did he have to say to Georgia voters? So Biden is the the clear front runner in the polls right now. I want to make a note. It was significant. Last night was Joe Biden's first appearance where he appeared with another candidate at an event. And so that was a milestone. And it really punctuated the importance of this event in particular and, you know, courting the black vote when you're coming down to Georgia and Atlanta. Um, But he started his remarks last night by changing his stance on something called the Hyde Amendment. Um, This is a law that bans the use of federal dollars to be sent on abortion procedures, except in the case of rape, incest, or when the woman's life is in danger. So on Wednesday, the Biden campaign released a statement saying that he still supported this law, which opened him up to a lot of criticism from national Democrats and from his opponents, including Beto O'Rourke, who he shared the stage with last night. Um, He said new abortion laws being passed around the country, including the one here in Georgia, highlighted the need to ensure that low-income women really had access to the to abortions. I can't justify leaving millions of women without access to the care they need and the ability to to exercise their constitutionally protected right. If I believe health care is a right as I do, I can no longer support an amendment that makes that right dependent on someone's zip code. So this was a total reversal from, you know, what his can what his campaign was saying on on Wednesday. And, you know, he, he did explain it. He tried to say, you know, I'm not going to ap- apologize for my former stance. He said the circumstances are just different. OK, so Joe Biden there speaking in Atlanta. The question about the event specifically Thursday morning was the African-American Leadership Summit courting the black vote and courting important endorsements. Who was there? I mean, how big did the party show up for this? So this was a, a lot of big name Democrats. You have Reverend Al Sharpton. You had Jesse Jackson was there. Um, Andrew Gillum, Stacey Abrams, uh, Representative Maxine Waters from California. A lot of really prominent black Democrats all came into Atlanta. And then, you, of course, you have lesser known names, but some of the really top strategists that, you know, not 
everyone's assigned to a campaign. And some of these candidates are not only trying to court endorsements and raise campaign dollars, but they're trying to bolster their staff with some of these top minds in the Democratic Party. So we mentioned at the top, a number of people have campaigned in Georgia so far, but where have they been? Have they stayed in the Atlanta metro region? Is that where the gains are seen? So the vast majority has been in the metro Atlanta area. Um, You've seen events all over downtown Uh, You've also seen events out in Gwinnett County. Elizabeth Warren held a rally back in March at a high school in Gwinnett County, one of the most dynamic counties in Georgia, if not in the country. Um, Also, Plains, Georgia has been an interesting destination for many, and that's because that is where former President uh, Jimmy Carter lives. And so a lot of people have made the pilgrimage, as they call it, down to his church down there to attend his Sunday school class and then meet with him and his wife afterwards. Bernie Sanders is the only one who so far that I know of has visited Augusta, Georgia. He was doing a sweep of southern states. He was in South Carolina. Augusta is conveniently located right across the Savannah River, and he held a rally there as well. An endorsement from Jimmy Carter would be very helpful, I guess, to any candidate. But, But to go back to this question, is Georgia turning blue? David Brand, a Democratic donor and marketing professional, told the AJC, Georgia is now more than an ATM for presidential candidates. So these candidates are clearly seeing Georgia as a battleground, or as we've heard, even a blue state from Cory Booker. Are the numbers with them? So the numbers for what will actually happen in the general election, when whoever the Democratic nominee is facing Donald Trump, presumably, those those are a little fuzzy. But right now, they're really focused on these 120 Democratic delegates that will help them get the Democratic nomination. So they're really building that game. And then, of course, they're thinking long term. These candidates want the nomination. They're really trying to build their operation down here and get somewhere. Do we know if Georgia will turn blue we're not sure. The the numbers, you know, Stacey Abrams ran a really, really robust campaign. She will tell you, as well as will other Democrats, they will tell you that the losses came because of voter suppression. And so hopefully if we see these changes, if we don't see, you know, a Republican secretary of state overseeing his own election, they won't have anything to blame that on. So we'll see what, what changes during this election cycle and see if they get a different result. And we'll see what the date of the primary is going to be. Because we still don't know. GPB Political Rewind producer Robert Jemison, thank Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Let us know what you're thinking. We're on our Facebook group, GPB Radio On Second Thought. You can reach us on Twitter at OST Talk. Email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org. Is Georgia a purple or even blue state? Coming up, an epidemic in America that does not dominate candidates' messaging. In fact, we hear very little of evictions. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us with On the Media host Brooke Gladstone and more of On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Construction cranes poke through the skyline across metro Atlanta, a testament to growth and efforts to draw new companies and residents to call the region home. Not so visible are the millions of Americans being thrown out of their homes, and it is a problem throughout the country. The eviction lab at Princeton University found that more than 2 million evictions were filed in the U.S. in 2016. NPR's On the Media partnered with the eviction lab for a four-part series called The Scarlet E, Unmasking America's Eviction Crisis. Tonight, 100 million renting Americans will come home and lock their front doors against the vapors and the dark. Doors might even keep those out for a while. The real challenge is ensuring the most vulnerable among us even have doors. Hello, Sheriff's Department eviction, come to the door. We have an eviction crisis. On the media host, Brooke Gladstone there. She reported from Atlanta and other cities for the series and joins me now from WNYC. Brooke, so great to talk with you. Great to talk with you too, Virginia. 
This series follows one that you did previously called Busted, America's Poverty Mm -hmm. Myths. What what are some of the myths about eviction or the Scarlet E, as you call it? Well, we call it the Scarlet E because one thing we found over and over again is that if you have an eviction on your record for whatever reason— the possibility of finding another landlord grows vanishingly small. And there have been people who have gone to 80, 90, until the point where they are so worn down with rejections, they'll take whatever they get. In terms of the myths, uh, I was stunned by so much being one of the uh, multitude of journalists clustered on the coasts and in hot markets, I thought gentrification was a huge problem. I thought uh, lack of housing stock was a huge problem. those aren't the real problems, not for most of America, certainly not for mo- most of Georgia, which has an eviction rate and an eviction filing rate high above that of the national average. And if you go to Tulsa and Albuquerque or, uh, you know, Richmond, Virginia, these are not places that are super sky high. What you've got is uh, a situation where the map of eviction, the really the highest evictions in the country, fi- follow the path of the Great Migration. That, that fact, is, you, that is yeah. such a revelation in your reporting that you can almost superimpose the map of the Great Migration on top of the housing crisis. Mm-hmm. Not, not things that you would think of as particularly hot housing markets. So, yeah, who talks about Tulsa? <laughs> right. So what's at play here? Of what's at play here, you know, is sheer racism, the habit of racism. The fact is that Atlanta has the highest rate of income inequality of any city in the United States. Right. And uh, and then on top of that, what you've got is a pattern, and and it's not limited to Georgia. It's not limited to south to the South. It follows the path of the ma- Great Migration. People who tr- fleeing Jim Crow were unable to make any investment in what has always been the American dream. Unable to buy. Simply denied the kinds of loans that were offered to white people, no matter how much they made. The interest rates were so high. And then later, when FDR passed the New Deal, it was explicitly designed to exclude black people in order to hold on to Southern Democrats in that coalition. And so... Again and again and again, if they were going to buy, it was going to be in circumscribed neighborhoods where they were allowed to buy because uh, certainly segregation was legal until 1968. And then the interest rates or even the natures of these so-called mortgages weren't mortgages at all. They were basically layaway plans designed to fail. Only you were paying the state taxes on the supposed uh property that you owned through the mortgage. It's just a series of ripoffs that continues. I'm not talking about just poverty itself, and of course that's a problem because uh, there were only two professions that were excluded from the New Deal prizes of Social Security or of uh, unemployment insurance or of the minimum wage, which then guaranteed you the ability to at least 
live with all the basics. They were excluded to agricultural workers and domestic workers. Mm -hmm. In other words, a lot of black men and a lot of black women. And you did your reporting on the ground in Richmond, Virginia, Camden, New Jersey, Indianapolis, Chicago, and Atlanta. But Mm -hmm. this is not a problem that affects only people of color. Is that correct? It's just predominantly? Well, of course not. In fact, 60% of the nation's homeless are white. Uh, That means... 40% of the homeless are not white, and 13% of the country is African-American. Right, compared to the population. So you can do the math there. Yeah, and uh, it certainly isn't. And, of course, the kinds of inequalities that we are experiencing now are not solely the remnants of racism. They're uh, the rise of corporations, the replacement of mom-and-pop owners with... uh, remote, huge, faceless LLCs that basically file eviction by algorithm without any knowledge of the circumstances of the person they're renting to. That isn't to say that mom and pops uh, are always great. In fact, there are some really horrendous mom and pop landlords, plenty of them. But the fact is, is that ultimately, at least they know their tenant. And these people don't. They're just uh, numbers on a on a, you know, on ledger. A spreadsheet. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the the data on evictions is not gathered in any kind of organized fashion by the federal authorities. How did you find out about these? And and also, are these you said these are big corporations, are they filing in courts? Is this happening in any kind of formalized way? Right. Now, I to be clear, the most of the renting business is still owned by mom and pops, but it used to be Those used to be the vast majority of owners, and that dominance has chipped away. So now it's just a couple of percentage points more mom and pops than these big corporations. In terms of the gathering of the data, the eviction lab had to fight long and hard to get it. They went and gathered it from state to state to state, and as... uh, uh, Matt Desmond, who wrote Evicted and who started the eviction lab at Princeton, will say there are some California-sized holes in that data. Uh, he finally has gotten some data from New York, but hasn't been able to, uh, in, you know, put it into, plug it in and see what it says. It was very hard work. I mean, some of these records were found in trailers in West Texas and that kind of thing. And then, of course, he needed some expert data crunchers to get some meaning out of them. But I think it's important to note that the rate of eviction filings and the rate of actual evictions is widely different, both across the country and in Georgia. And uh, and also the rate of informal evictions, which appears to be rising very high, and so never that leaves means a paper trail at all. You're not filing something in court. Someone, you know, you might get a note on your door saying you're out in... I remember this from your Busted series, actually. Wasn't there a woman? She worked at Domino's, and she got a note, and she had to oh, be out yeah. in three yeah. days or something now like that. Now, that was a, an actual filing in that case. Uh-huh. But in a lot of places, they'll come up and say... Uh, 
you know, they'll say, you've got to go. And, oh, I'm still on my lease. Well, and then they take their door off, mm-hmm. you know. Oh. Or they say, you know, you're not going to make the rent, so why don't I give you some moving expenses if you promise to be out of here by next Tuesday and the place is clean? That has no paper trail. That's what you call a cash-and-key eviction. And then there's a whole bunch of evictions, and, and this would be in a hot market, say. You were in Seattle, and someone says... Uh, Okay, your lease is up, or let's say it's in Oregon, and uh, it's going. Your rent is going up by forty percent. You have to go. That is, you know, basically an eviction. You lived in a place. Now you can't live in it anymore. Can I mention one other myth that sure. really sure, gobsmacked me, which is that in most of the country, not in the super hot markets, but in most of the country. There is very little difference in the cost of a cheap apartment in a cheap neighborhood and a good apartment in a good one. Wait a minute. I mean, this amazed me. Living in New York, if you live in Milwaukee, say, the difference between a good apartment, a B-plus apartment, and a B-plus neighborhood, well, that's going to cost you six eighty. And if you live in a C-minus apartment in a C-minus neighborhood, that's going to cost you six twenty. Well, so you're going to ask why? Why, well, first why of don't all, they? You want to know why? Right. Why don't they move to and another why neighborhood? Is the price like that? Because they're not allowed. Because they won't be rented to. No one can force you to rent to someone. And let's say you had a bad situation. Your hours were cut. You got pneumonia. Your kid was you know, had a broken leg and you spent all day in the emergency room and you are spending 60% of your income on rent, you get an eviction notice. That's what we call the scarlet E. That's what makes it so hard. But also, then you get the whole great migration thing of, I don't need to rent to you. I can rent to this person. In fact, you're going to bring just your very presence will bring down the, the marginal value of this place. And I'll let you live in this neighborhood, but it's going to be priced way above uh, the market value because there's more risk in these neighborhoods. There's more crime and maybe there's people running out on their rents, but they have found there are studies that have used national tenant data kept by the census to show that the amount of profit that is derived from these places these typical places, not the hot market places, is twice as much the bad apartment in the bad neighborhood versus the good apartment in the good, twice as much profit from the bad place because you compensate for the risk way more than the risk actually occurs. Well, we get a better picture of it there. Speaking with On the Media co-host Brooke Gladstone, she is working on a series or has completed a series. The first episode is up now. It's called The Scarlet E. Uh, On the Media is on right here on GPB on Sundays at noon, but Brooke is talking about this series. Throughout the series, we do follow families, and the first episode is in Richmond, Virginia, Jeffrey and Mm -hmm. Kelly in Richmond, and Mm -hmm. here they are, a a clip talking to their son, Jalen. Mm-hmm. How do you feel when you see mom and dad stressing about trying to pay for the hotel room? How does it affect you? I feel sad every time they say trying to kick us out. I say what? One of the points you make in the, in the your reporting, Brooke, is like how many children are affected by this? What do we know they, about those numbers? They are 
uh, overwhelmingly affected. In fact, they are the highest population of those evicted. And in fact, the presence of children in a household increases the possibility of eviction. So, you know, you're fostering a generation built on instability. Uh, every, there are endless numbers of studies to show that transience in school and transience of a school population, because the schools associated with these neighborhoods of transient populations do terribly. And if you stabilize those populations, they will do ever so much better. I know one landlord in Atlanta who actually, uh, her name is Margie Stegmeyer, who, you know, was and has made a lot of money from real estate, but figured out that if you stabilize a community, you don't upcharge. You might even provide things like childcare so that people don't have to leave their work. You'll have a more stable community. Ultimately, you'll make more money, and the schools will go from literally the bottom of the Georgia system to the top, I'm, or I'm, very close to the top. I'm trying to conceive of what it would be like to you know, live in a place and the door is taken off the front of it. Yeah. This whole idea yeah. of your home, you know, being turfed out of your home, what does this do to, you, you mentioned the stats for schools, but what does it do to dignity and, and, and the mental health of somebody to live in that kind of insecurity? Well, there are some psychologists, psychologists that think that place identity is uh, very closely related to self-identity. And if you find yourself identifying with a pile of junk that costs more than you can afford. I don't know what that does to your self-wealth as a self-view as, as an adult or as a parent or as a child. Um, in Georgia, I believe that Georgia may be the only state that does not require a warrant of habitability or warranty of habitability. Uh, Meaning? In meaning that you need to uh, have a document that certifies your place is habitable. I see. And uh, you, and up until very recently, I mean up until May, you, uh, retaliatory uh, eviction was legal. If somebody complained to you, you could evict you, evict them. Uh, moreover, people didn't know their rights. There is a new bill that passed. I think it's called House Bill 346. It was signed by Brian Kemp last month. It was a huge, huge fight because it actually added something to the state law. It was written very carefully to protect good landlords. Now, obviously, tenants, it's so new, tenants don't even know that they have these rights anymore. But the fact is, it's much easier for slumlords to evict than to fix. Mm. Well, Brooke, we have half a minute left, and uh, I want to let listeners know that they can go and see where their city ranks on the database. Just go to mm -hmm. evictionlab.org. Really looking forward to the rest of this series. When does the Atlanta episode come up? The Atlanta episode is in the last because I am using it as a case study in public housing. It is, the, it is where one of the first great public housing projects, FDR, was there and went up, and it has none now. 
on the media I mean, host, yeah. Br Brooke Gladstone. Thank you for that. We look forward to it. And you can listen again to the program right here on GPB on Sundays at noon. The latest series, The Scarlet E, Unmasking America's Eviction Crisis. You can hear the first episode now. Stay with us for an Atlanta woman's love for dogs and how that transformed the community around her. A dog tale you don't want to miss. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Behind the concrete walls of the Fulton County Jail, inmates are hard at work training dogs. The Canine Cellmates program pairs rescue dogs with inmates who train them to be adoption ready. They sleep and eat and play with their four-legged companions for 9 to 12 weeks. For the six-year running, CCM has been supporting the program that gives inmates a purpose and gives shelter dogs a home. We sent Summer Evans to find out more about the program. Susan Jacob Bowes. I'm director of Canine Cellmates, the jail dogs program in Fulton County Jail. Most programs that involve incarcerated persons and dogs are inside of prisons. This is a jail um, and that is challenging of its own accord because the physical structure of a jail is not usually conducive to having dogs. Jails are meant for short-term holding and so usually if they're an urban jail like Fulton County they're a high-rise which is very difficult to try to house dogs in. My name is John Kendall. I'm an inmate at Fulton County Jail and a member of the Canine Cellmates Dog Program. This cycle I have Chewbacca. We have a Star Wars theme in this cycle, so they're all named after characters from Star Wars movie. And if you see Chewie, there's there's nothing else we could have named him but, but Chewbacca. My name is Jeanette Holloway, and I'm the lead trainer for the Canine Summit program at Fulton County Jail. What's great about Chewy, he's a, we're pretty sure he's close to being as, as purebred as they can get from the shelter. And he's a Leon Burger, which is a mix between St. Bernard's, Newfoundland's, and um, Great Pyrenees, three breeds. They're noted for their lioness features. When he's off leash, He's playful and jumps around and high energy, but you put a leash on him and he immediately goes to work. Which those three breeds are known for. They're all rescue breeds, water and land rescue breeds. Be patient, slow it down. 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 Good boy. Here we go. Good boy. Here we go. I was arrested for drug trafficking, trafficking heroin. Um, and most of the guys here have minor charges. Mine is a, a little bit more serious. But seeing guys come and go from cycle to cycle, um, it, it really changed my thinking. You know, everyone says that, you know, a drug charge is a victimless crime. But when you see these guys come in here and they're drug addicted, um, it really changes, changes the way you think about you know, your actions and how they affect others. The pride that they have in themselves, passing that dog over to a new family, knowing it's going to be safe and well taken care of, and on top of that, that they've trained that dog to behave accordingly for that new family, it's gut-slowing. I mean, it just fills the room. They're excited and they're emotional, 
but they're really proud of themselves. I think for a lot of them, sometimes it, it could be that it's the first time they saw anything through to the finish line. The city of Atlanta is very lucky to have a program like this and to have Susan and her volunteers. Small miracles happen here every single day, every day. And they should be thankful for Susan because she, she and her volunteers, they're saving lives. You know, one man and one dog at a time. Thanks to former On Second Thought producer Summer Evans for that audio postcard. For more information on how you can volunteer or help with the program, visit gpbnews.org. Not all superheroes wear capes, jump over buildings, or hail from Wakanda. And if you're near downtown Atlanta, you might run into some non-traditional superheroes known as the Wonder Dogs. The nonprofit works with at-risk kids by rescuing dogs in the neighborhood. Data from the Atlanta Humane Society reports that 70 million homeless animals are in the U.S. Only one out of every 10 dogs finds permanent homes, and the Wonder Dogs have rescued about 400 of them. Gracie Hamlin is founder of the program. She joins me in the studio with more about the organization. Gracie, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Virginia. I am so honored to be here. Well, I thought you might bring some dogs. I brought you a picture of a dog. <laughs> she brought me a beautiful, beautiful picture that one of the kids made. In fact, just tell us, what do, what do you do? How do kids, dogs, how does this all pair together? What I've done is I, I've taken some kids that were really had nothing to do. Uh, and I saw a need for animals running all over our neighborhoods. And I've been rescuing dogs for 15 years. Kids save dogs, dogs save kids. So I gave them an opportunity to help me with these dogs. And well, how, you did know, you, how did this even all start? Uh, basically, it was a, a sp- spring day. I was outside gardening and I saw a pack of kids crying, little babies, young ones from seven to nine. And it's in me to ask, you know, what's wrong? And they said there was a gang jumping them. And I... My military, my whatever in me got jumping and check out what was going on. And sure enough, there was an encircled of a gang cheering seven-year-olds to fight. It reminded me of a dog fighting ring. It was the most heartbreaking thing I've ever seen. And after that, it didn't get better. I just started seeing so much anger and frustration uh, in the kids. And they had rightfully because there was nothing to do. They were bored. And they weren't being challenged. And I'm seeing these brilliant minds going to waste. But at the same time, I'm seeing all these discarded animals. And I'm starting to see what the pattern of this community. Why are they all being ignored? How can I help one and, and save another? I don't know Where do what you live, by the way? We're, uh, well, when I started the program, it's in Peoplestown. Mm-hmm. Now we're in uh, Parkinson Park. Uh, we are moving to Lakewood next. We're in the areas that are considered shadows of Atlanta, yeah. you know. And there are sadly way too many stray dogs uh, in our communities, just as there are so many stray kids without anything to do. So I thought, well, it'd be really cool. These kids are saving these dogs. I'm going to save a lot more dogs. By the time we're four years into this program, we're now looking at, holy cow, these kids are really going to save these animals. But they're growing to become such compassionate, empathetic leaders because they're learning so much about caring for these animals, caring for each other. They become a, a family within this program. 
So you find street dogs and you kind of pair them with kids. What do they do? Do they walk them, feed them? Mm -hmm. What? Yeah. So uh, it's it's easy. Kids naturally want to save something, and in our neighborhoods, it's really easy to find strays running around. So they run to the house with a dog, and we get really excited. We check for microchip. We we check the community, see if somebody lost a dog, and we quickly network to basically get the dog out. And um, then they start socializing. That was the really cool part is to see, the, you know, um, the animal and the child loving each other, uh, taking pictures, marketing that dog as needing a home. But at the same time, the kids were teaching, training them, feeding them, housing them, sheltering them, cleaning up after them, washing them, grooming. And the kids are building dog houses. Eventually, with the center, we'll have so many dog houses that people will know where to go to for a free dog house. And we've had dog houses stolen, even though they're free. But how do kids find you? Uh, word of mouth. These kids, uh, they all want an opportunity, and especially we have jobs. These kids are not just learning to take care of animals. They're learning how to create an opportunity for themselves. So they see that they're making money. They come over and uh, ask for an opportunity. So you can pay them? Yeah, we pay. We they On top of rescuing dogs, because we entrusted in the community by helping the animals, they trust us also with their lawns. So I give a kid a, a lawnmower. They go and cut their neighbor's yard. They, um that kid also gives uh, cuts the senior's yard. So it, it's a way to, the community sees what relationships we're building. We're encouraging them to do the right thing, but also be paid a little bit because we got to be honest, we're talking about kids who don't have very much. And the thing that's going to keep them going is, is survival. Can you tell us about some of the children specifically that you work with or a connection that you've seen between kids mm. and a dog? Uh, the kids are all just beautiful. I think that all kids have the ability to love and want to be loved and, and want to share that. And um, the boys, especially my program, James, Gary, Garyon, Canigel, these kids, in that environment, they can be pulled away from what they want to do, which is be nice and be sweet. Um, but with this program, they have that choice. You know, they can choose, okay, do I go the hard route or do I go the nice route? That's what I'm seeing with these kids. Gracie Hamlin is with me. She's the founder of Wonder Dogs. That's an organization in Atlanta that works with at-risk kids and stray dogs. Well, let's hear from one of your volunteers. Here is James. He's reading from an essay on why he became a member of Wonder Dogs. The reason I want to be a Wonder Dog is so my skills can get better at home with my dog. Another reason is I want to be a Wonder Dog so I can help dogs and he helps. I want to make all bad dogs, good dogs, and I want all dogs to be successful in life. Another reason is that I don't want to join street games and become a gang member and get murdered. Wow. So he was 10 years old when he read that. Yeah. Now 16. Yeah. Wow. To see that and, and to say, uh, uh, you know, good dogs, bad dogs. Yeah. <laughs> that is such a great comparison. Like exactly. if you leave a dog out and don't give it attention, what happens to it? Yep. So, all right. So you're talking about kids adopting dogs. What are some of the responses you get from parents? You know, they don't want a dog coming home necessarily. No, the, the dogs come to my house. So all yes, of them we do there? not. Yeah, we do not encourage them to take dogs home. Um, the parents are very happy because the kid is engaged, involved, and busy. Uh, these kids... The, the day is full of things to do. So this, uh, this volunteer work goes beyond managing and caring for dogs. What other ways are you working with the community? 
Well, we're addressing the public safety. So that's the most exciting part that I am in right now. We basically are now working with law enforcement. Councilwoman Carla Smith and I and Animal Law Source have started the Animal Cruelty Task Force. And that to me is the most important part of our work right now because we're addressing the, the challenges we're facing in Atlanta with the animals isn't just about dogs. It's about public safety and what you're missing when you're turning your head to the cruelty and neglect of our communities. And uh, when I joined the military, I want to be a police officer. And police officers always learn, well, try to learn the link of violence. Link of violence says that people who hurt people originally start by hurting animals. So I started using that more and seeing more of the hurting of the, the animals in our communities and seeing that this practice has gone on too long and people are not paying attention to when you start ignoring the neglect and abuse of an animal, what else are you missing? So I, it, took a, it took a fight, but um, I had to make the city understand that animals are not just for crazy animal lovers. It's about looking at public safety in a totally different aspect. It's putting, when you're looking at problems and solutions, be inclusive. That means include the animals. How is the treatment of our animals affecting our community? And I'm back again to my inspirational leader, Gandhi. You know, you can be, uh, society can be judged by the treatment of the animals. I used that in Atlanta when I started seeing this. This is not the work I wanted to be doing, but I'm inspired by what I've learned and how much we can do to help these communities. What have you learned? You talked about the inspiration you, these kids teach you. What, what is it that they're teaching you? Uh, they are teaching me that when we teach kids about anything is possible, it really does mean that, you know, we teach kids that, look, you go out there, you set your goals, you set your dreams and you can do it. But as adults, I start seeing that that kind of becomes not truth. We start having agendas and other ideas that are guiding us. And yet we're telling our kids to be honest and be truthful and go after your dreams. So these kids have taught me that you really have to be honest and you have to be compassionate and you have to keep the values that your parents are teaching you in your life. So the things that we are teaching these kids about the love for animals and community and service, it's gonna become now making these kids global thinkers. We're thinking not only is our local service to the animals, we're thinking about the impact we're having from the trash that we throw on our streets, where it ends up, how it affects the oceans. We teach everything that Wonder Dogs learn is that every choice that I make has a cause and effect. And do I wanna have a positive impact on my world? And, and, and be relevant. You know, these kids don't realize they are very relevant in their world. And I'm so excited to share that with them. The, now the nonprofit, The Wonder Dogs, mm. is, is currently fundraising $500,000 through Georgia Cares to create this new headquarters that you were talking about in Fulton County. So a couple things here. Are you leaving the neighborhood behind if you go to this new location? Uh, we hope not. We are keeping our partners. We, we are keeping our kids. We are uh, going to figure out a way bicycles. There's so many nonprofits along our way that we can create transportation, bridging opportunities for all kids to come to the center. And I, I, I hope it does come true. Do you have plans to expand outside of Atlanta? If we can prove the success, you know, from the safety of the community standpoint, I believe that we can take this program anywhere and everywhere. Victoria Stilwell is on our board and she's always talking about it in England. And England is always telling us, we want to see you here. So People are always asking that this work go farther, and it should go farther because the issues are national. The kids, they're saving local animals, but we are looking at the situation in our world. And to be able to start them at young, thinking about empowering them at a young age about saving the animals locally. Imagine if everybody took that to heart and started saving their animals locally, how much it would blossom in a community. Yeah, how do we, do we even know how many stray dogs there are out there? 
all over the world. Well, you talked about how, you know, kids are this resource that is getting untapped and sort of left behind. And a lot of people want to do something about that. You've done it. You're talking the talk, walking the walk. So for somebody else there who's listening and wants to help, what can they do? Uh, you mean locally? Yeah. Start with your backyard. A lot of us see that dog chained on the street and, and you're, you know, you want to help knock on that door, meet your neighbor. You know, say, hey, can I help you? Don't approach it as a, as a problem. See an opportunity to meet your neighbor and offer them resources. I'm kind of imagining you walking down the street with a bunch of kids and a bunch of <laughs> like mm-hmm. the Pied Piper. Yeah, that's her. what they call me. <laughs> I'm not sure I like that story. It was so weird. <laughs> yeah, it's, it ends badly. <laughs> but I want to thank you so much, Gracie Hamlin, for speaking with us. So nice to be here. Gracie Hamlin, she is the founder of Wonder Dogs. You can find more about the organization, including their fundraising campaign, at gpbnews.org. You're listening to Atomic Dog by George Clinton. You're invited to join every On Second Thought conversation. You can go to our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. You can follow us on Instagram at GPB News or email us at OnSecondThought at GPB.org. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, and The Raven Taylor. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Don Smith, our dean of grammar. Amy Kylie is senior producer. Sarah Shariari is managing editor of news for GPB. Our interns are Allison Kraussman and Jake Troyer. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Virginia Prescott. Why must I feel like that? Why must I chase the cat? Never talk to me.